This upcoming school year, teachers are playing a critical role in helping families adjust to the new normal, whether that be in the classroom or at home. We need to support our teachers now more than ever. That's why Clorox is donating $1 million to Clear the List Foundation to help supply the resources teachers need to set their students up for success. Clorox is also offering you a chance to win $5,000 for your back-to-school needs, plus $20,000 for your local school to prepare for the year ahead. To enter, visit Clorox.com. This is a download from the Wireless Theatre Company. Well, the Wireless Theatre is fortunate enough today to have Nicholas Parsons with us. Uh, Nicholas, thank you for joining us. Not at all, Ben. Pleasure to have you here. Uh, you're known to many of us, generations, as a presenter with an unmistakable warmth and charm. But foremost, you're an actor. Absolutely. And, you, and you've been performing now for over 60 years. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the beginning of your career? Because I understand you, 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 uh, you performed uh, as, a, as an impressionist on the uh, cabaret set. Yes, well, well, I have a very interesting uh, start in this profession because I was born at a time you didn't do what you wanted, you did as you were told. And I was imbued with the idea of becoming an actor from the earliest age I can possibly remember. And I've never deviated from that. Almost from the age of five, when I went to the circus and I was carried away with a live performance, the first I'd seen. But my parents were completely against it. And you did then what your parents told you to do or wanted you to do, uh, as opposed to one of my children were young, and, and of course now with grandchildren, schools as well as parents encourage a child to find his particular metier, what he wants, where he will most express himself and follow that line. So I was thwarted. And as I was rather clever at making things and repairing things and had lots of tools for that purpose, particularly with clocks, it was suggested I might become an engineer. And the war had just started, so, you know, it was ridiculous to sort of argue against it. And my attitude really was, well, if I'm not going to be an actor, I don't really give a hang what I do. So the next thing, I was on a train during the beginning of the war off to Glasgow to begin an engineering apprenticeship on Clydebank. And that was probably the best education for life anybody could have, as it turned out in retrospect. At the time, it was half... Sorry, it was... A half. It was not half. Yes, it was. It was harsh and challenging, because I went straight from the protected, safe environment of a successful professional middle-class family. My father was a doctor, to the tough, challenging world of Clydebank. To begin with, I didn't know what they were talking about. I'll break until you know yourself. Right, should come up here. I'll fucking tell you. It's a monk of a crazy. And I'm telling you another thing. I said, it's all right. You came up here with your welfare action, but we'll teach you who to get your homes dirty. This is life here. This is love. That's why it's all about, you know. And eventually, I mean, how I survived, I don't know. Maybe I survived by an instinct. And one of the things I've learned, if you're always yourself and accept others as they are, they will accept you. And maybe they won't like you very much. You may be run out of, but that's fine. Then you, you drift apart. But you, you can embrace people of all kinds of different backgrounds and denominations and uh, attitudes and behaviours because you can find some way in which to relate to them. And so um, mine actually was humour to a great extent because I'd always wanted to be an actor. And I used to fool about as a youngster. And I loved taking people off and doing impersonations. I didn't know they were impersonations then. Mimicking. And, and making getting laughs. I used to. I was the comic of the class at school. I used to get cane for it because the cane was mm -hmm. used then. In fact, I say in my one-man comedy show. I mean, in those days, I was cane for getting laughs. Now I get paid for it. And all this when I could take off the different foremen or gaffers, we called them, which endeared me to my fellow apprentices. And so you build a relationship. You build your survival course. I did manage to get to the university for a little while, study engineering, but technically I was never cut out to be that. But the, the war was on, and so when I registered for military service, I'd already done two years of my apprenticeship, and it was very valuable war work, making pumps and turbines for the ships. So I carried on, and I completed five years. I am a qualified marine and mechanical engineer, and I've got what's called in Scotland my lines to prove it. You know, I'm there, I've, I've done a full apprenticeship, you know, I was not as big neck that big English bastard. And I said, here, listen, I'm as Scots as you sometimes. I've got a lot of Scottish blood. We don't give a damn about that, Nick. You've got an English, such an voice, which is all right. 
yeah. Anyway, so um, in fact, uh, interesting thing how voices change. Uh, in those days, if you've been to public school, which I had been to, wonderful public school, St Paul's, um, you do. We did all have those who'd come from a middle-class educated background. Um, we did all speak very, very much more like that than we do now. The perceived English was very much of that particular caliber. In fact, if you see the films of that period, and I was in quite a few films in the 50s, and I am talking like that, and nearly everybody else in the film talking like that. I mean, the, the, the perceived English has rather smoothed its way out. Unfortunately, it's going too far now. It's going into an estuary English, where you've got the influences of America, of course, and Australian and all other kinds of things. And it would be sad if we lost the quality of what is phonetically correct English. Because this is what actors, and now we're on to your area, need to learn. Because you can't speak Shakespeare well and happily unless you've got a correct perceived English. It's phonetic, I mean, look at it logically. In the Oxford English Dictionary, there is a phonetic pronunciation for every word. So why don't we use that? as a Now, it doesn't matter how people speak. I'm, I'm not a purist about this. Uh, you can speak in any way you like, as long as you're communicating. But if you wish to communicate language and speech, particularly poetry, whether it be Shakespeare or any poetry, the perceived pronunciation is much more attractive and falls more easily on the ear. You see, in, in France, they have an academy for the preservation of their language. I think we should have the same in our country. You can deviate as much as you like. And, all, and this is not to deny our wonderful dialects. Oh, I adore the dialects in our country. I mean, and I do most of them as a natural mimic and impersonator, but they, they colour the language. I mean, they're very indicative of the areas from which they come. And there's a lot of culture and history in those dialects. I mean, the Scottish dialect, which actually the Scots, a bit prejudiced, I know, but something to do with the Scottish accent because they have better diction, majority of Scots do speak a better standard of English than a lot of English people. And the Welsh and the Irish accent, they're beautiful to listen to. And the Geordie, which we're getting a great deal more of on the television now. And even a true Cockney accent is attractive. The real, and the West Country, because my mother's family come from the West Country, from Bristol area, it's a lovely dialect to listen to. You know, it's smooth. And there's all kinds of words there which are indicative of that part of the world, you see. And it's lovely. But there are people who speak a sort of, the word I use again, estuary, a sort of English, which is bits and pieces of all these. And a touch of um, the Australian which has come in and the American influence. I mean, if I can give you one simple example, the one that that's, it, I think is unfortunate. But, but again, don't think I'm pompous about this. I'm not. I don't mind how people speak. But if other people accept that as correct, it would be sad. I mean... We have all these wonderful diphthongs in our language, you know, two vowels together, and there's a subtle difference in the pronunciation. Take the O-U sound, which is quite attractive. You talk about a pound, or drowned, but, and the O-W, which is the same. Now, it's the Australians come in there, and they talk about a pound and a now, but English people are talking about pounds and nows. I mean, I had a commercial the other day, this suddenly said, um, all prices down, down, now, buy now, buy now, pounds, save pounds, lots of pounds going down, pound, now, now, now. And, you know, I want to put my fingers in my ears. Now, maybe, you see, a lot of people are so used to it, they're not going to be affected by it, which makes me a bit of a purist, I'm afraid. Well, this is something I think I've been uh, guilty of in the past myself, mm. is, is picking up bits of, of accents from other mm. countries, perhaps, and, and using them in my own mm. speech. Do you think perhaps this is something that, that goes on a lot more in London than, than in other regional areas, like you say, where there is a very distinct dialect from Bristol, from Scotland, yeah. or everywhere else? Do you think this is a London-based thing and perhaps something that actors in, or from London need to be aware of yes. more so than anywhere else? Absolutely. I mean, it is much more London-based, which is the centre of everything, where they went to the advertising industry and things like that. And, and people at trying to reproduce the uh, the speech that is common parlance, the everyday speech. But it's been influenced by all these outside forces, the multiculturalism of our society. And you're quite right. But I'm talking on for the wireless company to people who 
a lot of them aspiring to become actors and actresses. And um, I think on the stage, if you want to reproduce the language in order to convey character and personality, it's you should use the, the perceived English. And a lot of people think perceived English is the sort of rather la di English. It isn't. I mean, I get irritated when a newspaper says Nicholas Parsons with his cut-glass English accent. I maintain when I speak English, I speak what I call actor's English, uh, which is hopefully with good diction better to understand than others. But the Lardidari accent is not as talk like that. I mean, there are people, you know, who've got a rather pyramid background, and, you know, they, they put it on like that, you know. And in fact, I mean, that's a character that you can play in one of the parts that you might measure. And that, if you put on that sort of accent, I mean, you immediately convey the sort of background and the, the character. But I don't talk like that when <laughs> I'm speaking normally. In fact, uh, if you listen very clearly, and I listen to people's voices because I'm fascinated by voice and speech, uh, if you listen, I actually have a Scottish inflection in my voice because I've lived so many years in Scotland. I might speak with a perceived, or I like to call it actor's English, and I think actors should be very much aware of this. But the, but the inflection is Scottish. If I put on a Scottish accent, you can hear the different inflections that come in there. Like that I'm talking, I'm talking with a quite a sparse Scottish <laughs> accent at the it's moment. It's more than Edinburgh, isn't it? Well, <laughs> it, everybody thinks that, that that particular voice is more Edinburgh, Morningside. But there's people in Glasgow who talk exactly like that. In fact, I've got relations who talk like that. But no, that is a sort of, rather sort of, what in, in England we would call the, the, the Oxford accent, you know. But, but if you listen to a Scot... The inflection is different, and that's the delivery. And sometimes actors will try and play a part with a different dialect, and they'll try and get the pronunciation of the words, but they don't always listen to the inflection, and it's the inflection of the, with a dialect that gives you the truth if you really want to get into that particular role and part. Well, now that's uh, that's very interesting to, to hear that about uh, the difference, if you like, between the stage performance and uh, mm. and, and recorded audio performance mm. as well. Uh, and it's something that you know, obviously, you've had a lot of experience yes. in. Um, you began on stage at the the early part of your career. I should say it was on stage at the Windmill Theatre. No. No, it's interesting. I think it was on, on Desert Island Discs, they made a huge jump because they edited some out. It appeared that my first experience was at the windmill. I managed to get to the windmill after many years of struggle. Right. Just to go back, I don't know. I, I said after the war, when I was discharged from all military service, you know, and they used to have conscription then, and uh, I came back to London where my family were, and I was now a qualified marine and mechanical engineer, as I told you. But all my time in Glasgow, I'd been getting my early experience. I joined a small concert party, that's why I did my impersonations and impressions, uh, and doing my stand-up comedy. Uh, I used to do bits and pieces of the Glasgow BBC. There was a small repertory company outside Glasgow in Rutherglen, run by the famous woman Molly S. Urquhart. And uh, they were all semi-professional. We got two pounds a week. And every so often she put on a play and we'd rehearse, because we all had other jobs, we'd rehearse every night one week and play every night the next week. Uh, or maybe rehearse for two weeks, I've forgotten now. Anyway, um, but this was great theatre experience as an actor. So when I came down to London uh, and decided then, my parents said, what are you going to do with your engineering? And I said, I'm now going to forget it. Uh, I did it to please you. I'm now determined to follow what I've always wanted to do and become a professional performer. At that time, I was imbued with the idea of becoming an actor. I had no contacts, no nothing. The only contacts I had were up in Glasgow. And this was sheer determination. And um, you, you, it, this is a profession where you, you have to have some form of dedication and believe you can achieve it because it's a profession that is full of upsets and disappointments and indignities and, and challenges. But if you can take those upsets and disappointments and come back fighting, then maybe you will succeed, which I had to do, because you have to recognise that only 80%, I think our union equity estimates, only 80% 
of the profession is ever working at one, any one time. And even the next 15% are lucky if they're earning a living wage. And there's only 5% who happen to break through and earn a good salary and achieve things. And those are part of the 5% people read about. And they all think if you're working, you're in that category. I mean, I know, and you probably know, so many actors and actresses who are working and earning enough money to keep the wolf from the door. But it's only just enough. Mm. But they love their profession, which is wonderful. But some of them, maybe because they get married and have families, they have to give it up. Others just cannot cope anymore and fall by the wayside. But if you have enough belief and enough courage and enough energy, and there's a wonderful word, a comedian called Jimmy Edwards used it to me. When he was asked once, he said, what is the most important quality you need to succeed in show business? And the answer is quite simply, stamina. You have to have physical stamina because it's a demanding profession. You have to have creative stamina. You have to have emotional stamina to cope with all these different things. And if you've got that and you can strive, eventually something will happen. As I proved it, I had no connections. I knocked on doors. I, I wrote to producers. I bought a copy of the stage because there were all kinds of people listed. I found there was a play going to be on the West End by a management called First Shepherd, and the play was called The Hasty Heart, which had five parts for young men. And I went up, I found where their offices was, and I went up there, and I sat in the outer office of that theatrical management, pleading to have an audition. And they weren't interested, because I had a job of understudying at the time. And eventually, they got so fed up with me sitting there, they told me I could do an audition. And from that audition, which went quite well, uh, I thought, well, all right, I've impressed them, but I've got the other job, as I understand, they won't release me. But they were sufficiently impressed, because it was the same management, to decide that I should be released. And they gave me a part in that. And in fact, I went up, when I, I read the Scots part, because when you read Unseen, as we did in those days, you read in a dialect which is natural to you, you read it better. Well, that was the lead. I didn't know at the time it was the lead, because you were just given a script. They want read, read that part there. And uh, it's a hell of a challenge. Anyway, they liked it. And when he, the production manager came to the Savoy Theatre where I was understudying and asked me to come and see him at the stage door, he said, I have to see you private, Nicholas, because everybody else in the theatre doesn't know this play's about to come off. And he said, they liked your reading and they've decided to give you the part of the New Zealander. Well, I'd never heard New Zealanders speak at that time, you know. But fortunately, there was... The Anzac Club, it was called, where New Zealand and Australian forces who were passing through London would go. And some were being repatriated back to their homeland because the war was drawing to a close. And I went up there, and you have to be inventive. And so I said to the people at the door, I said, I've come here because I'd like to talk to some people from New Zealand because I'm thinking of emigrating there. And I want to get a flavour of the country and find out a bit about it. Oh, yeah, that's all right, Nicholas. Yeah. Well, well, uh, Jim, would you like to talk to this fellow? He wants to emigrate to, uh, to New Zealand. Maybe you could talk to him, you know. And I went down there and I just listened to the... I mean, I didn't know what they were talking about, but I said, listen to the voice. You say, And I listened and I recognised there was a subtle difference between the Australian and the New Zealand accent. The Australians are much harsher, much more down the nose and so forth. And I've got the subtlety of the New Zealand accent and um, played the part and a lot of people thought I was a New Zealander. But you have to be dedicated to your craft. And it worked, and I got my first job in the West End. But you see, people think, oh, well, you got your first job in the West End, you're there. No, you're not. You just got your first rung on the ladder. And then I did a tour in a leading part in a play. And then I went and guested in a repertory company in, in Bromley in Kent, run by a brilliant director called Ronnie Carr. I went to play and the, the American part in Sarah Rattigan's play While the Sun Shines. And again, the skiff for dialect and impersonations and so forth helped. And um, they were very impressed, and they asked me what part of America I came from. I'm not saying there's any sense of conceit. It's something that I just have that ability to do. And Ronnie Carr, the producer, was impressed. He said, would you like to stay on? Because it was quite a prestigious rep. And I suddenly thought, no, that's right. That's what I should do. I've had this experience there. I'm not a, I'm not a name yet. I'm not a star. 
I've just had some... I could have been carried away as young youngsters would. I thought, no, this is what... I must learn my craft. I must work in repertory and play a different part in a different play every week. And Ronnie said, I think you will learn a lot down here. And to cut a long story short, I signed up for 12 weeks and stayed for nearly 18 months. And during that time, I played any kinds of roles, comedy, drama, dramatic. I mean, I discovered that comedy and character parts are my forte. And in fact, I was not very good in romantic roles. So you find out your weaknesses too. But we also did um, uh, restoration comedy, which was great. You know, costume acting in costume parts is different style and technique and approach. And of course, we did a, a, at least one Shakespeare every year. Great, I got my Shakespeare experience. I was terrible in my first Shakespeare role. But I learnt that, of course, in my left rep, uh, I thought now maybe the West End's waiting for me. And, of course, in those days, they cast very much according to type. And it was not ideal for me because I was now a character actor, comedy actor. And most of the plays in the West End were what were called drawing room comedies where the young juvenile lead would burst through the French windows and say, hello, who's for tennis? And they were called wet juvenile roles. And I may have looked like a wet juvenile, but they weren't the roles I could particularly good at playing. And I was so frustrated that I wasn't getting what I knew and had proved to myself I could do. And, of course, the, the, what was called the kitchen sink drama hadn't come in. John Osborne's plays were only just starting. And then we had um, one of the basic, wonderful plays of, about real people and real basic emotions, not the artificial kinds which are descended from the, the, the drawing-room comedies of Coward and Maugham and others like that. Terence Rattigan was writing great plays, but they were more based more on um, middle-class characters. We hadn't had the working-class characters in plays. And John Osborne and others changed all that. And suddenly the realistic drama was in, which was great, because you got everything. And I wasn't getting parts in these because I didn't look right, because they do still cast very much in the theatre according to type, according to what you look like. And my face has been against me throughout my professional life. Anyway, um, I thought, well, I've got to prove I have a broader talent. And there was a lot of cabaret on in the West End then. Most restaurants had a single cabaret artist, and there were clubs that had floor shows. In fact, there was a cabaret scene in the West End of London. This was now in the early 50s, and throughout most of the 50s it went on. And so I did the most difficult thing of all. I got a cabaret act together. I'm a great one for accepting challenges. I accept any challenge. I mean, half the most successful things I've ever done have come through accepting another challenge. And you use the experience you've got to take that challenge on board and try and excel in what you're doing. And cabaret in our country, so stemming from Coward and um, things like that, and Maurice Chevalier and Marlene Ed Dietrich and those sort of artists who went to the Café de Paris, and I actually went to the Café de Paris as well. But this also, television killed this because there were two areas of humorous entertainment then. One was the music hall, the variety theatres, and that was broad humour. And the other was Cambria, the sophisticated humour, which a lot of the theatre plays were. And television, I believe, one of the things it achieved was it made its vast audience aware of entertainment which they'd never seen before and, and sort of slowly got the two to meet. So people who only went to the variety theatre the music hall, would never dream of going to a play, straight play, suddenly saw plays and thought, God, they're good. And they start going to the theatre to see a play. And those who'd only go to the theatre, to the West End, and see a play, suddenly saw variety shows. They saw variety performers on television doing broad comedy. They thought, they're very funny. And so we had a meeting of the ways. So sophisticated cabaret in the West End died a natural death and disappeared. And so that cabaret scene is gone. It no longer exists. It was a great experience while I was doing it, and it was tough, because we have no tradition in our country of cabaret. We have a tradition of musical. 
on the continent where I've worked, they have a tradition of cabaret. So you do a cabaret club, which I've done in Paris, and when the cabaret starts, everything stops, and the audience treat it as a performance. And they either laugh and they clap and enjoy it, but they're very respectful until the show's over and back to the food. But in this country, there are people who've gone there to dine and they don't want entertainment, but it's there. It's on the menu. And sometimes they heckle you. Sometimes they talk. And you have to get control of them and convince them you've got something worth listening to. It was tough. But what a wonderful experience I had. And from that, I went to the Windmill Theatre. But I then broadened out, and I became a stand-up comedian. And I was resident comedian at the famous Windmill Theatre for six months. It was all in my autobiography. Fantastic experience. And so I'd had this amazing experience in the windmill. And from now on, I was labelled. Oh, he's, he's a variety performer. And I started getting a lot of variety work. And I was struggling. And then and while I was doing the cabaret, I was labelled a cabaret performer. So in order to prove that I had got this broader talent, I did something which was quite a shrewd move in one sense and might interest the people who are interested in the wireless company because I love radio. I've always loved radio. My first job was in radio, in a play in Glasgow. My first job as a solo man was doing impersonations as a Carol Levis discovery. I did an audition for the BBC drama Rep. I'm not sure if they still have a drama Rep or whether it's all freelance, but they had a nucleus of brilliant performers on their drama Rep. Because there was no television in this time, you see. And the, the plays, well, still the standard plays are very good on the BBC, and, the, and they had some wonderful, wonderful creative productions. And the, the top producers in the country, they had some wonderful, talented people there. And so I did an audition, and I got taken on, and I was getting wonderful radio experience, playing, again, as my days of repertory, lots of different roles in lots of different plays. But they had discovered that I had this facility to do different dialects and different voices. So I played everything from Scottish farmers to Mexican sheep herders and, and French people and Italian waiters, you know, because you, I do the Italian, you see. You know, oh, you can do any dialect for Torres. And I, and I was playing all these incredible roles of different characters. But I wasn't getting what probably I'd like to have done was one of the straighter roles. It was a great experience. It was a lovely, lovely atmosphere there. And actually, I did leave before my 18 months was up because I got a chance to work in television. It was beginning with a comedian called Eric Barker. You're dying to ask me a question. I can see it in your face. Um, no, I, 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 I was going to see, uh, to talk about I, I, this whole thing of being almost pigeonholed, of saying you mm. are you are an actor, therefore you appear on stage. Mm. That is what you do. It doesn't mean that you can be a presenter or something else. Um, and it, it seemed to me that you established that you like comedy in a, in a kind of way to, to help or make the struggle of starting out easier mm. to concentrate on comedy. But you, you, you had also a desire to play the straight roles as well. Is that something that you just, you realised that you couldn't do as well, so you just have to lump it? Or Well, call it uh, ambition, greed, or creative satisfaction. But as I know I can do lots of different things, I enjoy doing lots of different things. And um, I love being able to switch straight from doing a bit of stand-up or a bit of improvised comedy to playing a dramatic role. It happened uh, a number of years ago when, out of the blue, I was cast in the Doctor Who series, The Curse of Fenric, and I played a very serious emotional vicar who was terrified because of all the hieroglyphics which were called runes in his script. And if they ever got out, the doctor had arrived there and the Russians were not very far away and uh, MI6 was around the corner because all kinds of weird things were happening in this village and the vicar knew that if this information got out from the cellar and the runes could be translated, you know, all kinds of catastrophe would arise and all the villagers would start turning into hemovores, which they did. And... Um, and, and I was, and, and I didn't really understand what it was about, but it, but the Doctor Who fans were absolutely fascinating. In fact, it was one of the most successful Doctor Who series. And eventually, unfortunately, somebody arrived, you see, on the MI6 or the 
translated the runes and it all got out and the hemovores, the villagers started into hemovores and I turned into hemovore and you know, it was all dramatic. But it was a highly dramatic part. And what a joy! Because I don't know whether it's a natural technique or... I think producers feel that, oh, well, if you study casting with that vicar, he'll bring out of his comedy technique and he won't be able to do it or he won't be able to get the sincerity or he won't be able to get the drama. If you can do it, if you proved it, like riding a bicycle. I don't time if I'm going to get on my bicycle for, for months. But I don't fall off when I get on again. I just cycle straight off. Actually, there's a, there's a sweet story here uh, which might amuse you. Uh, because there was a... So it's only rarely that you get a really creative director. And this fellow who was directing the series was Nick Maddock, and lovely man. And I was chatting to him one day, and I said, uh, and it's wonderful to have this opportunity to play a dramatic role again, because I've been doing so much comedy and presenting. And uh, I imagine you must have realised that I am basically an actor who's branched out and done other things. He said, no, actually, I didn't know that. I said, well, what prompted you to cast me? And this is where a director shows creativity. He said, well, I happened to bring my children to see the pantomime at Bromley. I said, yes. Well, just a minute, I said, I was playing the dame in that pantomime. He said, yes, but he said, it was the empathy you showed when you were talking to the children at the end. I thought, ah, that's the quality I want for the vicar. Now, that's a creative director. So from playing Dame in pantomime, I played the Reverend Wainwright in Doctor Who. It's a lovely theatrical story. And I wish there were more and more stories like that, not only for me, but for other people as well. Yeah, well, indeed, uh, the, playing the pantomime Dane is something that initially I think, well, I can't see that. And then the more you think mm. about it, I think, well, absolutely, why not? Absolutely. Yeah. And, of course, most recently on stage, you uh, played the narrator in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's right. No, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is the film. Sorry, the Rocky Horror but Show. Don't, don't do apologise, but I just want the listeners to know that <laughs> there is a, a subtle difference because the purists of a Rocky Horror would always pull you up on that. They'd heckle me out of town for saying that, right. probably. So. Yes. And yes. Uh, did you find that, that, how was it that your performance in this and... Uh, did you, did, how, 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 were you, how did you play it? Were you Nicholas Parsons, the presenter? Or the... No, you see, um, uh, no, I'm not, because, uh, just to digress for a moment, you mentioned earlier on about presenting. Nowadays, this is a category of performance which never existed when I was young. I mean, Spotlight, the casting director we all uh, subscribe to, they've got a separate edition called The Presenters. And there are youngsters who come into our profession, they want to be presenters. Uh, I maintain you best to get some acting experience first, make you a better presenter. But presenting is almost a, a separate part of the profession now, because there's so much presenting going on. I just drifted into it. And uh, I get a little bit niffed when people refer to me as a presenter, because I've done so much of that, hosting and presenting. I like to say I'm an actor who's done lots of different things. But the Rocky Horror Show, another interesting show business story, actually. Um, I, I'm, in fact, as a humorous way of putting it, my agent phoned up and they said, um, you know, have you ever seen the Rocky Horror Show? I said, yes, I did see it once before. I don't think I'm right for it. He said, she said, well, they want you to take over the role of the narrator. It's on tour at the moment. It's coming into the West End to the Duke of York's Theatre. And they said, um, I better go and see it. And I went to the worst possible place to see it, which was the, the Forum, Kentish Town, which is actually a sort of rock venue. And they'd even taken all the seats out. I don't know why they took the Rocky Horror Show there, really. Because, I mean, they do sing along and shout along and dance along with all the things the fans do who love the show. But here, all they did was just shout. And I thought, you know, wait a minute, this, this, is, this is not theatre. I, I know it. And um, I, I, I thought, I don't think I can cope with it. And I phoned my agent, and this is a typical theatrical story. She said, well, they're very keen for you to take over the role, and um, you're coming to the West End, and you haven't been in the West End for a while, and um, it has a youth following, and you've got quite a following amongst the younger generation now with all the other work you've been doing. I've got you quite nice billing, and it's not a bad salary. I said, you talked me into it, haven't you? <laughs> I mean, you know, we're, we're a bit like um, harlots in the sense of show business, you know, we're, it is the second oldest profession, you know, we are we are reliant on the affection and, uh, and the gifts of others. 
But as you say, with so much unemployment in it. Then. Well, I wasn't thinking of unemployment. I think I reached a stage where I could, to some extent, pick and choose. But I, I did say, all right, because I'm coming back to the basic question you put to me. I then, actually, I did it. I did it, went on with, with the, the script three days beforehand, memorised it. And this is a great thing from all that training and rep. I memorised the script. Because I thought I'd go on and someone would prompt me. And I had one morning's rehearsal with the cast and went on and did it. And, 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 and I, I don't want to any sense of conceit to say, no, I didn't dry or anything. It was because that's the world in which I grew up. We were putting plays on in rep. And when we were learning another play at night, we were playing a different part of the joy. You know, I learned that thing very easily overnight. And once I blend, and it was a part you could blend into easily. I mean, it's, it's quite easy. Anyway, what I did was that I, um, I didn't think I was a natural for it. But when you get cast in something, you have to assess how you're going to interpret that role, which is right for the show, in keeping with the production and the director's notes and everything, and find a way within your own professional psyche, whatever you want to call it, to create something which will make an impression on the audience and be part of the ensemble. And to do this, you call on all the experience you've ever had to find some way to create something, which I had to do very rapidly, and I did it. And it was a, it was a learning process for the first week because when I first went on, the narrator up to then had been treated as an object of ridicule because uh, he was played in a very pompous way. And that wasn't my nature. And when they started shouting at me, sort of, which was tradition of all the, the fans who shouted at the traditional things, the different characters, as soon as the narrator comes on, it was, get off, get off, piss off, kiss off, boring, 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 boring. And some narrators just ignored it. Others just ran off with a tail between their legs. And I, well, I thought, I'm not going to cope with this. I haven't had this or anything before. So I stood my ground, waited to calm down. And I came back with comments. I'd worked in cabaret a lot. And I came there. And suddenly, slowly, it sunk into the regulars who shouted, this is a different approach. We don't have to ignore him because he's going to play the role uh, in a pompous way. I engage with them and still gave her the performance. And so my first role, in fact, the director said to me, he said, Nicholas, I don't mind if you improvise a bit there with the audience because it helps to relate you to them as long as you keep the play show moving after. So I said, exactly, that's my professional who told me that. And also it helps the show because when I came on then, I wasn't shouted at. They listened to what I had to say because the narrator does advance the story to a great extent and then he gets involved in the story. And after a little while, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was like a sort of uh, rather erotic um, pantomime. And, um, uh, and it is, it's an amazing show which Richard O'Barr has written because it has developed a cult following and uh, it's got some memorable and great moments in it. It's, it's, uh, it's great theatre. And there's all kinds of different theatre. I mean, there's dramatic theatre, there's comedy theatre, there's musical theatre, and there's different moods of theatre you can create. And this was creating an entirely different mood of theatre. Great credit to, to Richard, who, who created it. And, and I then did another season there, which was very successful. I went on tour with it. And I couldn't do all the touring, which is for many weeks. They used to ask me to go and guest for, you know, a number of weeks in different places. And, um, yeah, and uh, I know the fans liked it because I got written up in their fan magazine as, the <clears throat> as their sexy leg narrator. <coughs> I think you'll have to cut that cough out. Mm? The fans commented on your legs being yes, because again it was a it was a, it was a gimmick that um, again absorbing the atmosphere of the show. I said to the director and I joined because I'd, have you seen the Rocky Horror Show? I have. Yes. yes. At the end, they they all come on and do that wonderful number, which is called the Floor Show, and they slightly fall out of character, and they're all dressed the same in fishnet tights and suspender belts and high heel shoes and they do a lot of blending and so forth it's a, it's a great number it's a great production number and from that you blend into the finale so they're all dressed the same and up to then the narrator's been dressed very formally in his crushed velvet jacket and black trousers and I said to 
our director, I said, do you think it might be quite amusing when I come on to take my bow at the end and that, that I should be dressed exactly the same as everybody else? You know, the fishnet tights and suspender belts. And he looked at me incredulously and said, would you really? I said, well, I think it might get quite a laugh. He said, I think you'll bring the house down. So we compromised. I get the jacket on and underdressed the bottom half. And, of course, it got a huge reaction. On the basis, really, I'd been so formally dressed up to then. And now it looked as if I had joined the gang and was one of them. And it, was, and it got a wonderful reaction. But what I didn't realise is that men don't think about their legs. Girls are more conscious of them because people talk about them and they're photographed and so forth. And they talked about girls having lovely pins and so forth. Well, some men have quite good-shaped legs. But we don't talk about it. We're not aware of it. And I didn't know until the Rocky Horror Show that I've actually got quite good legs. And when you put on fishnet tights and high heel shoes, it shows them off to great advantage. And so people were coming round. This is another ghastly aspect of show business. People were coming round after the show and started off saying, oh, that was a great show. Oh, I really must congratulate you. And you wait for the nice comment on your performance. And they said, you've got very good legs. And I thought, God, I worked all my sweating myself all the way through the show. And all they talk about was the legs. I know just that you're feeling. But that's show business. <laughs> Another long-running, mm. much-loved programme you've been mm. involved with over the years, of course, which has been running <clears> since, <throat> well, for 41 years now, mm. of course, is Just a Minute, mm. uh, which is something that I've grown up with personally, mm. um, which is in that very familiar half-past-six slot on Radio mm. 4 where a lot of great comedies come from over the years. Mm. Uh, how did this come about, and... and what do you think is the appeal, really, of, of, of such a long running? In a, in a day where programmes come and go, like aeroplanes taking off and mm. landing at Heathrow, what is what can you attribute the success of Just a Minute to, apart from, obviously, your presenting style, your, your, your style of presenting it? And the, I suppose the, what, quite a quite a long story, if, you, if you've got time for it all, have you? Uh, I think we've got, I've got, we've got a bit of time. How long do we think? Can you do it in Just a Minute? Uh, no, not in just a minute, because of the rules of just a minute. Cause I, I, um, talk, I was talking to Paul Merton about this, and I said, you know, it's fascinating to think about just a minute, which is such a challenge to play and is so difficult. I said, because the, em- the, the, the essence of comedy is that you hesitate for effect and you repeat things for emphasis, and that is the essence of often getting a laugh. But you, in, in just a minute, have to get laughs, and you can't use two of the basic tools of comedy. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, it's a challenge. Anyway, uh, I never set out to be a presenter. I, had, um, I hadn't even done the quiz show then. I just accepted that as another challenge. And it, it took off. It's like what I was saying when I took on the Rocky Horror Show. You assess what's involved and you try to make it work for you. Because I wasn't the original choice to be chairman when we did the pilot of Just a Minute. I was going to be on the panel which is what I wanted to do. I told you about the cabaret. I'd done a lot of ad- improvised ad-lib comedy. So I was going to be on the panel. It was all fixed. And Jimmy Edwards was going to be the chairman. And Jimmy was never free on a Sunday when they were wanted to do the pilot recording. He was always playing polo or something. So David Hatch, this new young director, who just come down from Cambridge with the footlights, said, Nicholas, I, um, I think, listen, I think we'll get this pilot off. He said, I think I'll make you chairman for the pilot. And I pleaded with him. I said, no, I'm not right for it. I don't want to do it. Please, David. He said, well, I'll do a deal with you. You be chairman for the pilot. Derek Nimmo's free. We'll put him on the panel. We'll do the pilot. And if we get the series, you can go back on the panel. I did the deal. Did the pilot. It wasn't very successful. The two women, I don't want to mention their names, uh, were, were not good at all. Clement Floyd was quite good. Derek Nimmo was quite good. But we hadn't really got it set. We hadn't evolved it. And they didn't want a series. They weren't, going to, they weren't going to commission it, as it's called. But David Hatch was a very, very creative young man. He eventually became head of broadcasting. And David saw the potential. And he pleaded with them. He eventually got the series uh, because he wanted to keep him. He said, all right, David, you go and prove it. He came to me and said, I've had to fight for this series. One thing they quite liked was the way you did the chairmanship. So he said, you're stuck with it. Now, in show business... We don't argue. We like to work. Because work breeds work has been my motto ever since I was a youngster. And that's the best tip I could give to any youngster. Don't ever say, how much money is the part right for me? If it's work, take it. Analyse what's involved and do it. Because you never know who may see you when you're doing that work and you'll get more work. There's no truer saying in a profession where there's so much unemployment, 
Work breeds work. That has always been my motto. I've digressed. So I took it. And I wasn't very good, I don't think, to begin with. I've heard some of the early recordings. I, I didn't like it myself in them at all. But slowly, you know, you did a series of 13. It uh, evolved. I got better, presumably. The, 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 the panellists got better. And the show did evolve. And then the director, David Hatcher, had a brilliant idea. He brought in Kenneth Williams, who, again, was struggling to begin with. But eventually he evolved and became extraordinarily funny in it. And this is the, oh, the thing I said before. You use the experience you've had before to find a way to make that part or that role work for the show but also work for you. And slowly I evolved into the host, or whatever you call me, or chairman, that I am now. But you constantly analyse your work and polish and improve. And that's the only reason I've survived as long as this. Every job I do, I think about it very closely afterwards. In fact, when you're doing it, every job I've ever done, some little thing occurs, whether it be a dramatic role or... But anyway, some little nuance occurs somewhere with the audience or with your delivery, which you suddenly realise, yes. And you put a, instinctively a bit of polish in there. And you remember it. And you retain it. And slowly, just a minute over the years, has evolved and developed. And its longevity is to some extent due to the... It's a brilliant idea... No, 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 nothing away from its creator, Ian Messiter, and nothing from the people who interpret to who are so good, the top players of the game. But what I like to think I've contributed is over the years, as I've got closer to it, I have found little subtle ways to improvise the rules so that they become more flexible and give more scope to the great comic performers we've had in give you one example. When the show started, it was um, deviation from the subject. Pretty harsh area in which to jump anyway. And I changed it after a bit to just deviation. So that meant the Bright Sparks and Paul Merton and others could challenge and come in with some bizarre challenge of deviation, which was a very funny comment, which helps the show. And then I evolved another system of saying, well, it's got nothing to do with the subject, but we did enjoy it, so we give you a bonus point for that. He's happy. Uh, the audience are happy. The show's happy. The person who was challenged gets a point for an interruption, and he carries on. So you evolve. I mean, subtle evolve. Involvement. Isn't there such a word as evolvements? There must be. There should be. There should be. We've said it now. Anyway, um, but it's this continuing polishing of what you have. And always after every recording, I think about it and analyse it. I talk to the producer. I was 10 years with a great comedian called Arthur Haynes. We had the biggest success on independent television in the 60s, when Hancock was a big name on BBC. And after every show, Arthur and I would have a drink. And we'd talk through what we'd done, thinking about it, learning from moments in the sketches which we played together. And um, I get a little... Um, not annoyed, that's the wrong question. I love my profession, I love the people in it. But I, I'm surprised by some actors who say, and I think rather pompously, oh, I never read my reviews. I say, read every one, even if they're bad. There must be some reason that he's criticised you. Think about it. It may be unjustified, but there might be some little grain there that triggered that unkind remark. And maybe you can... Adjust that so it'll be more acceptable to a broader audience. You can learn from everything anybody ever tells you. It's um, Show business is a process of learning. I mean, I'm quite an old age now, but I maintain I'm learning all the time. Every time I go out, only subtle things. But if you stop learning, if you think you know it, that's the moment to retire. Because once you think you know it, you become complacent. And I've worked with play in plays of people, actors, who have obviously become complacent and they, they've got the job and they think about the money at the end of the week. And after a little round the run, their performance becomes monotonous and they are just going through the motions. They're not going to evolve. You've got to go on the stage every night in a play and the challenge is to play a part that you've maybe played for a whole year for 365 performances. No, it's more than that because you have a matinee as well. And go out there and, uh, and rethink it. 
in the sense that you've still got the same lines, you're still the same character, but you've got to go out thinking you're doing this for the first time so that your performance becomes alive and, and it sparkles and it gets across the footlights to the audience. But if you just go on and speak the words because you know them so well, complacent, deathful, no thank you. And the audience won't enjoy And the other actors, which I encourage no actor to have this attitude, we're talking to youngsters if they are wanting to get started. If you're in a play, especially if you're in a play, and uh, it's a comedy, because I work mostly in comedies, and I've had actors come off and say, gosh, it's a ghastly audience tonight, because the laughs aren't coming so well. I said, no, no audience is ghastly. They're different, and they're not responding so rapidly or so easily. It's up to us to step up our performance that notch so that we can get them on board. You've got to accept everything as a challenge because um, it's not the audience. It's you on the stage who's not making that audience laugh as much as usual. You've got to find a way to make them. An audience is, is fascinating because it's a group of strangers who've come together, sit down all together, not knowing each other, and suddenly they react as a unit. And often you have catalysts in that audience, if it's comedy, who will start laughing quickly and early, and they act as a catalyst, and they'll create more laughter. And it's fascinating. And you really want those people in the front, because laughter doesn't come from the back, it only works backwards. And if it's dramatic, that, that, that emotion is, is transferred, and they're acting as a unit. It's a fascinating thing, isn't it? It's great. So there's no, there is no such thing as a bad audience? No. And unless, of course, maybe they've had too much to drink or something like that. Just, oh, you know, I'm not talking about the, the people. I mean, I've done cabaret. The people who had a bit of drink and heckle and so forth, they're not part of the audience. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you almost want them to go to sleep or be ejected. No, yes, no, you, we don't talk about that. No, that, that's, that, that, that's an eccentric part of them. I was in, a, I was in an audience in the West End the other night, mm. actually, and the, and the creaking of the seats started before mm. the curtain went up. Mm. And it, I'd looked around the circle mm. and it appeared to me there were an awful lot of jet-lagged travellers mm. amongst the audience. And I thought, well, hang on, this is, you know, the, to begin with, these the performers now are going to have to give one hell of a show just to mm. keep, the, you know, keep the spirits up. And I got, I got the impression for the first time ever, and I, I, I would agree with you, that actually that, that really is a, a case of you have to step up your performance because yes. you're, you're right from the off. You're dealing with a tired crap, mm. if you like. It just seemed that way. You see, I maintain everything I've done in every area of show business has given me valuable help in other areas. Now, you see, working in stand-up comedy where you're communicating with the audience and uh, trying to get it uh, going and get laughs. I had a perfect experience of this the other day because I used much the same material. I was doing an after... It was after lunch speech, actually, and they, they always make me more nervous than anything because you never know how the audience is going to react, whether the conditions are right, whether the room's right, whether there's no light or something, or the microphone's not going to work very well, or whether they've had too much to drink and everything like that. And you have to get that audience very rapidly, and you build. Well, fortunately, they were in a very good mood, and I th they'd had one or two rather boring speeches beforehand, which helped. And I immediately got them on my side, and they were with me, and they laughed at... Every joke. Now, this meant that I instinctively, or you can say psychologically, whichever way you look at it, was able to lean, as I call it, on my material and was able to give it that little bit of edge and emphasis because I wasn't fighting to get their response. It was there. So, in a way, my performance became brighter, sharper, more colourful. And that's what you by stepping your performance up a gear. And this is what one knows. You go into a different gear in your performance. You don't change it in any way at all. You don't change the timing. But there's more emphasis, more energy. I think that's the word. It's a very subtle thing. And that's what every area I've worked in has taught me something about other areas. Well, Nicholas, finally, I'd, I'd like to ask you, because you, you've talked about how you evolve as a performer, mm. as an actor whatever your uh, role it is you're playing. Uh, how have you seen the business evolve, and specifically with radio, working mm. just a minute for mm. over 40 years, we said, how have you seen that evolve since you've been working in it? And, and really, where do you see it going, if you have any idea of the future? Well, this is the wireless company, and it's a wonderful idea. 
and you're getting in touch with once you're entertaining through the through the web, you're trying to encourage young people to get some experience. Because the profession has changed out of all proportion from the day I started. I talked about how I got going, which is maybe helpful for those who have no experience. But you see, when I was young, there were these wonderful repertory companies which I was talking about. And nothing replaces experience, which I've emphasized more than once in my interview with you. But you could get wonderful experience, and there were reps throughout the country. And youngsters, whether they had any experience or were coming out of their drama academies, could go and be requested, and you get taken on as an assistant stage manager. And then you play a few roles, and then you get performing. All those repertory companies have gone. Now, there is actually, in one sense, more work available, because all these television shows they do, Mind you, that's dying a bit because they're not using actors so much because they've discovered the reality shows work and they, they keep the ratings up and they're cheaper so they don't use, need to employ actors. So there's a bit lesser. But the trouble is so many youngsters come from their academies and it's a tough business. And there's, when you consider there's so much unemployment and how many youngsters, I don't know the statistics, are turned out every year from all the different drama academies in, in London alone and they're looking for work. And they go to audition. They get taken on for a role. They play a part in a, a murder mystery, a doctor series, and quite a lot of them, a Holby City, Doctors, all those other ones. And it's great. They've got work. I've started. And that job finishes. It's so sad for them because they're not going to get a lot of solid background experience. They might go on and get a whole lot of parts like that. But how do they get the deep experience to solidify? And also, if they get a big break earlier... They've got to literally learn overnight to give a performance so that they'll go on being asked to give more performances. I'm sure you can all think of people who had wonderful immediate success and have suddenly fallen by the wayside because they didn't have any grounding to take advantage of the success came to them. And others who obviously have a great instinct and they deserve to succeed and, and, and carry on. So um, don't give up. Keep trying. Uh, don't sneer at the job that might be offered because it's a humble job. It might lead to something more significant. And uh, keep plugging away. Don't get disillusioned because there's so much disillusionment in our profession. It is a different world to the one in which I try to go. Radio actually is where you can get the best experience. And the wireless company is a wonderful idea. And if you can do some recordings for them, and you'll go out on the net. Somebody might hear them. I've heard some of the recordings that this company has made, and I've heard some great performances, real talent there. And I thought, those people have got to go and plug in away. Something may click, something may happen. Might get into the BBC drama rep, and that might lead to other bigger and better things. But the wireless company is a brilliant idea, and it's giving entertainment, a modest little employment to our performance and our profession, Remember, I love our profession. I love acting. I love the people in it because the vulnerability they show by just deciding to go into it is very, very touching. And I meet all these young actors and actresses. I get very moved. They're full of desire and ambition and hope. And you don't want to dispel it. You want to find ways to encourage it. But don't be disheartened. Keep going. But radio is probably one of the best ways in because you can get radio work with a wireless company, for instance, and you'll get some wonderful experiences getting playing some interesting parts. But that's how you have to start. You mustn't think, oh, I did a, I won my, uh, the Academy Award at my drama academy, so I'm now a star. Where's my starring role? But just be sensible, modest, and learn and keep learning. And remember, no matter how long you're in the profession, you never stop learning. Nicholas, thank you very much for talking to us today and for the wealth of information you've given us as well. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a real pleasure to listen to you today. Thank you.
At Zenni, we believe everyone deserves access to high-quality, affordable eyewear. That's why we offer stylish prescription glasses for men, women, and kids starting at just $6.95. Our online factory direct model cuts out the metal men, so you save. At Zenni, you get the same quality frame and lens options that you'd get from an optician for one-tenth of the price, including blue blockers, progressives, prescription sunglasses, and more. The best part? Try on any frame, anywhere with our 3D virtual try-on. Zenni.com. Eyewear for everyone.